Let's go to the Lord again in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for the blessing of being able to not only lift up our voices in praise unto you, but we trust that our hearts also were lifted up in such a way that it brought some honor and glory to your holy name. In and of your fullness, there's no way that we could improve on your honor or your glory. Nevertheless, we are to conduct ourselves in such a way that it is pleasing in your sight. And we ask our God that you would continue to bless us to love and serve you. We pray that you would be with other faithful men who stand to proclaim the unsearchable riches of Christ. And we pray, our God, that you would watch over and keep and bless your people and comfort them in the midst of trials and afflictions. Bring the still waters of peace to their souls. Some are suffering due to outward persecutions. Some have diseases and afflictions in life. And there are all different sorts of trials and difficulties. But as we spake earlier, we thank you that in the waters and in the floods, you're there. We thank you for preserving your word and keeping it for us unto this day. Help us to hide it in our hearts that we not sin against thee. Lead us not into temptation and deliver us from evil, we ask. That we might be blessed to ever lead a quiet and a peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. And now, my God, I ask that you would help us as we look at your word. And that we might rejoice in thy providential dealings, not only with us, but with your, with the whole world. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Last Lord's Day, we left off looking <clears throat> at this phrase in Galatians 4.4, 4, the fullness of the times. The fullness of the times. And I want us to 
kindly dwell there for a, a little bit that we might be able to appreciate the Lord ruling over the world to bring the, the, the appointed time for the Lord to come into this world. I remember the first time that this was brought to my attention. It was just uh, astounding to me. And I hope it is to you. Uh, some of it we looked in last Lord's Day. And if we wanted to do a thorough study, we'd go all the way back to uh, the creation. But we started about a thousand years before the time of Christ with the end of the reign of Solomon. Because after Solomon's death, Israel was divided and you had the ten northern tribes that were designated as Israel. And then you had the two southern tribes designated as Judah. And because of the wickedness of bringing judgment upon the nations and because of the sins of Jeroboam, we saw that around 722 B.C., uh, the ten northern tribes were carried off into Assyria. And then we noted in Second uh, Kings 24, 1 through 4, that the, uh, the Babylon came into uh, Jerusalem in 606, and then in 587 and 585, you would see that in 2 Kings 25, verses 1 through 12. Just that's, uh, There's more verses that you could study. But in other words, God carried the, the, Israel, the, the Jewish people off into Babylonian captivity. And we want to look up today and look at a few verses of Scripture to show how God brought the, uh, uh, the Medes and the Persians and then the reign of Alexander the Great in Greece and then Rome. And then, the Lord willing, I'm going to try your patience and read uh, some paragraphs that I copied from a history book that I studied years ago called Christianity, Christianity Through the Centuries by Earl Carnes. And I'm reading for the 1971 edition, but it'll show you how God set the stage for the coming of Christ. In other words, history wasn't just going, going along without God's intervention. God brought the nations to where they were at the time of the birth of Christ. And I want you to keep in mind with all of the turmoil that's going on 
in the world today, the same God is still governing the universe. We don't know what's going on. But God does. So, turn with me to Isaiah chapter 44. We're taking up where Babylon was in power. But then we're going to see how God is going to destroy Babylon. And I could, there's many, many passages of Scripture that we could read regarding that, or regarding this. I'm going to start in Isaiah 44, verse 21, and read down through uh, verse 3 of the 43rd, uh, 45th chapter. Isaiah 44:21. Remember these, O Jacob and Israel. For thou art my servant, I have formed thee. Thou art my servant, O Israel. Thou shalt not be forgotten of me. In other words, they're, they're in captivity, but God hasn't forgotten them. And wherever we are, God hasn't forgotten us. Verse 22, I have blotted out as a thick cloud thy transgressions, and as a cloud thy sins. Return unto me, for I have redeemed thee. Sing, O ye heavens, for the Lord hath done it. Shout, ye lower parts of the earth. Break forth into singing, ye mountains, O forest, and every tree therein. For the Lord hath redeemed Jacob and glorified himself in Israel. Thus saith the Lord, thy Redeemer, he that formeth, formed thee from the womb. I am the Lord that maketh all things, that stretcheth forth the heavens alone, that spreadeth abroad the earth by itself, that frustrateth the token of the liars, and maketh diviners mad, and turneth wise men backwards, and maketh their knowledge foolish that confirmeth the word of his servant, and performeth the counsel of his messengers, that saith to Jerusalem, Thou shalt be inhabited, and to the cities of Judah ye shall be built, and I will raise up the decayed places thereof, that saith to the deep, Be dry, and I will dry up thy rivers, that saith of Cyrus, He is my shepherd, and shall perform all my pleasure, even saying to Jerusalem, Thou shalt be built, and to the temple thy foundation shall be laid. Now remember, if I remember correctly, Isaiah is talking about this about 150 years before it takes place. And he names Cyrus. He names Cyrus. Cyrus hasn't even been born yet. History hasn't even talked about Cyrus. Chapter 45, Thus saith the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have holden, to subdue nations before him. And I will loose the loins of kings and open before him the two leave gates, and the gates shall not be shut. And I will go before thee and make the crooked places straight. I will break pieces 
the, the gates of brass and cut in sunder the bars of iron. And I will give thee the treasures of darkness and hidden riches of secret places that thou mayest know that I, the Lord, which called thee by thy name, am the God of Israel. Now, when the Medes and the Persians were assaulting Babylon in war, Babylon was a pretty secure place. And the uh, the Euphrates River ran through the city of Babylon. And so Cyrus rerouted the river to go around the city of Babylon. But in the, in the bottom of those rivers were gates so that people could, even if there wasn't any water in the, in the rivers, then people couldn't come in through the city through the gates. And by the way, the walls of Babylon were so wide that I believe, if I remember correctly, six chariots could run side by side on top of the walls. Pretty well fortified. And Babylon was shut up. They were in their drunken stupors. And guess what happened? A guard one night forgot to shut the city gates in the river. And so all the Medes and the Persians had to do is just walk into the city and take it over. That wasn't by accident. That was God. He said here, notice what he said. I will go before thee, uh, 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 chapter 45, verse 2. Well, let's read verse 1. Thus saith the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have holden, to subdue nations before him. And then notice this. And I will loose the loins of the kings and open before him the two leave gates. And the gates shall not be shut. The gates shall not be shut. God said, I'm going to see to it that Babylon will be destroyed. And Babylon was destroyed. Look in Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 25. Taking up verse 12, reading through verse 14. And it shall come to pass when 70 years are accomplished that I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, saith the Lord, for their iniquity in the land of the Chaldeans, and I will make it perpetual desolations. By the way, Babylon has never been rebuilt after it was destroyed. And I will bring upon that land all my words which I have pronounced against it, even all that is written in this book, which Jeremiah hath prophesied against all the nations. For many nations and great kings shall serve themselves of them also, and I will recompense them according to their deeds and according to the works of their own hands. Now drop down to chapter 29 of Jeremiah. Verse 
Picking up in verse 10. For thus saith the Lord that after seventy years be accomplished at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word toward you in causing you to return to this place. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, saith the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you an expected end. Notice this. Then shall ye call upon me, and ye shall go and pray unto me, and I will hearken unto you. And ye shall seek me, and find me, when ye shall search for me with all your heart. And I will be found of you, saith the Lord, and I will turn away your captivity, and I will gather you from the nations, and from the places whither I have driven you, saith the Lord, and I will bring you again into the place whence I caused you to be carried away captive. Now turn to Daniel chapter 9. Daniel is in captivity. He's in Babylon. Verse 1. Daniel 9, 1. In the year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, of the seed of the Medes, which was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by books the number of the years, whereof the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah the prophet, that he would accomplish seventy years in the desolations of Jerusalem. Now what we read in Jeremiah, Daniel said, I was reading that. And he said, I realize that right now is seventy years after we were taken into captivity. So what did Daniel do? Look in the tenth chapter. Well, if you read chapter only in chapter 9, you'll see that Daniel set his face to, to pray and pray towards Jerusalem. You'll see that in verse 3 and so on. Why did he pray towards Jerusalem? You remember when Solomon built the temple? He said, if we are judged and carried away into foreign lands, if my people would look toward Jerusalem and pray then I will hear their prayers Daniel knew the Bible beloved we we are to know the Bible we're to study the scriptures and put it into our practice every day but now in Daniel 10 verse 1 in the third year of Cyrus king of Persia a thing was revealed unto Daniel whose fame whose name was called Belteshazzar and the thing was true, but the time appointed was long, and he understood the thing and had understanding of the vision. Verse 20, then he said he, knowest thou 
Wherefore I come unto thee, and now will I return to fight with the prince of Persia, and when I am gone, the prince of the Grecian of Greece shall come. In other words, the angel was telling Daniel, when Persia is no more, then the Greek empire is coming on. Chapter 11, verse 1. Also I in the first year of Darius the Mede, even I stood to confirm and to strengthen him. Now verse 2. This is the Grecian Empire. And now will I show thee the truth. Behold, there shall stand up three kings in Persia, and the fourth shall be far richer than they all. And by his strength, through his riches, he shall stir up all, stir up all against the realm of Grecia. And a mighty king shall stand up that shall rule with great dominion and do according to his will. And when he shall stand up, his kingdom shall be broken and shall be divided toward the four winds of heaven and not to his posterity, nor according to his dominion, which he ruled, for his kingdom shall be plucked up even for others beside those. In other words, the Grecian Empire came along, Alexander the Great, and around the year, his 33 years of age, uh, he died, and his four generals took over. And so you had the, uh, the uh, Syrian king, you had the Egyptian king, and you had two other kings. I won't get into all of that. But the kingdom, the, the uh, Grecian kingdom, kingdom of Greece, was divided into four sections according to their generals. And that was during the time of Anthony and Cleopatra and, and all of that in history. But God is prophesying. And he's telling what he's going to do. And then go back to Daniel chapter 2. We only see the Roman Empire in Daniel chapter 2. This, I'm going to start in verse 36. This is kindly a, a summary of all those kingdoms. You remember Nebuchadnezzar had a dream and nobody could understand the dream? Daniel comes in and he says, This is the dream. And we will tell the interpretation thereof before the king. In other words, Daniel included uh, his comrades, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, better known as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But Daniel, didn't, Daniel had the interpretation, and, but he said, I didn't get it by myself. They were, they were, said, we'll tell you, we will tell you the interpretation. Thou, O king, art a king of kings. 
For the God of heaven hath given thee a kingdom, power, and strength, and glory. And wheresoever the children of men dwell, the beast of the field and the fowls of the air of heaven shall be given into thine hand, and, thou, and, and hath made thee ruler over them all. Thou art, hit, thou art this head of gold. After thee shall arise another kingdom, inferior to thee, and another third kingdom of brass, which shall bear rule over all the earth. And the fourth kingdom shall be strong as iron, for as much as iron breaketh in pieces and subdue all things, and as iron that breaketh all these shall be shall it break in pieces and bruise, and whereas thou sawest the feet with toes, part of potter's clay, and part of iron, the kingdom shall be divided, but there shall be in it of the strength of the iron, for as much as thou sawest the iron mixed with miry clay. Now, the kingdom of iron by itself is normally believed to be the Roman Empire. After the Roman Empire comes on the scene, we come to Galatians 4.4 4, in the fullness of times. Look at Mark. Mark chapter 1. I probably should read Luke 2 first, but I'm going to read Mark, Mark 1. Then we'll go to Luke 2. Mark 1, 15. And saying, the kingdom, oh, excuse me, the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye and believe the gospel. But the point that, that I want to make out of that one verse is, when Jesus came on the scene, the time was fulfilled. The time was fulfilled. Look in Luke chapter 2. Taken up in verse 1, And it came to pass in those days there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And this taxing was first made when Cyrenius was governor of Syria. And all went to be taxed, every one into his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea, unto the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, with great child, being great with child. And so it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the end. In the end. 
Now, I realize that the word accomplished in verse 6 can simply be just it was time for Mary to have her baby. But that time for her to have her baby was when the fullness of time was come. The time was accomplished. The time was accomplished. And here's the thing about it. This taxation of Caesar's, he wanted to do this taxing 27 years beforehand. He was going to send out this taxation 27 years beforehand, but before he could do it, there was some disturbance disturbing in his kingdom over around Spain, I believe. And he had to go take care of that. And so it was held off for 27 years because it wasn't time for the Lord to be born. It wasn't time for his parents to be in Jerusalem, uh, in Bethlehem. In fact, it's doubtful that his parents were even married at that time. Or even had, they may have had a contract by, by their parents. We don't know about that. But God was moving. God was moving. Now I'm going to give a few points here and then we're going to look at the history of how some of this came to pass. With Israel being scattered abroad throughout the world and unable to worship the Lord in the temple at Jerusalem, what did they build to worship? Synagogues. Synagogues. This provided an open door for someone like Paul to go and find a waiting congregation of people for him to preach the gospel. He was a Jew. He could go into the synagogue. Those synagogues were not scattered throughout the land by accident. It was by the purpose of God. God judged Israel for being uh, polytheistic. They worship Baal, they worship Moloch, they worship Jehovah, they worship Malcolm, they worship several different gods. Well, after they went into Babylonian captivity, until this day, Jews have been monotheistic. It cured them of polytheism. It cured them of polytheism. Also, the mystic influence of the Medes and the Persians had an effect in preparing nations for the acceptance of the gospel. The domineering effect of Alexander and the building of the library in Alexandria, Egypt, in translating all books into the Greek language, opened the door for a one-world language for evangelism. And the advancement of the Roman road system. You know the old saying, all roads lead to Rome? Well, they had a Roman a road system that made traveling easier for the spread of the gospel. 
And for someone like the Apostle Paul, who had a Roman citizenship, he had the protection of the Roman government as he traveled throughout the land. When the fullness of times was come. When the fullness of times was come. Now, allow me to, as I said, uh, try your patience a little bit. In reading Earl Carnes's Christian Christianity through the, Christianity through the centuries, with all of this dispersal of and judgment on Jerusalem, I mean on uh, the ten northern tribes of Israel and two southern tribes of Judah, going through the Assyrian Empire, the Babylonian Empire, the uh, Medes and the Persian, Medo-Persian Empire, the Grecian Empire, the Roman Empire that was in effect, and so on. There were three contributions made or, at that time. One was a political contribution, the other was intellectual contributions, and the third was religious contributions. In other words, God is working in history. We don't know what's going on. But we can look back and see how he did this. Now, under the political contributions, there's four points. One, there was a sense of unity of mankind because the Romans, as no other people up to their time, developed a sense of unity of mankind under a universal law. That our own English law was influenced by Roman law is well established. This set the stage for the biblical truth that all men are guilty and under the, under the penalty of sin. Not only a sense of unity, but a sense of peace was established under Rome. Pompey had swept the pirates from the Mediterranean and the Roman soldiers kept the peace upon the roads of Asia, Africa, and Europe. This relatively peaceful world made it easy for the early Christians to move from place to place so that they could preach the gospel to all men everywhere. Third, the Roman road system was an excellent system that went throughout the empire. They were so well constructed that some were, are still in use today. Roman uh, roads strategy, uh, uh, excuse me, <coughs> Roman roads and strategic cities located on these roads were an indispensable aid in the rapid advancement of the gospel in the known world at that time. And fourthly, the Roman army set up provincials throughout the empire and thereby ideas were spread by the soldiers stationed in those locations. Some believe that Christianity was spread to Britain by means of Christian soldiers stationed there. Now the intellectual contribution. This has two points mainly. One is Universal language. 
See, one worldism can be a plus. One worldism can be a plus in some ways. It depends on whether the wicked are using it or whether God uses it for his glory. But either way, he's going to use it for his glory. Even if, even in judgment. Universal language was established by the Greeks in the ancient world when the Roman Empire appeared. The ancient library in Alexandria, Egypt, whereby all books were to be translated into the Greek language, contributed greatly to this universal language. It was the Koine Greek, Common Greek, the Greek of the New Testament. The Greek of the New Testament was Koine Greek. Just the common everyday language. The Koine Greek that God used in which the Old Testament was translated, that would be the Septuagint, was the Hebrew out of the Hebrew. And the New Testament was written, a common language for the common people to hear the common faith, the common salvation of Jude 3, on which the Lord established His ecclesia. This Greek word, had one meaning and use from the time of Thucydides, 423 B.C., and Christ did not, nor did any of the apostles or writers of the New Testament, change the meaning when talking about the New Testament assembly. Greek culture. It mattered not whether one was Greek or Roman, Polytheistic religion was so rationally unintelligible that he turned away from it to philosophy. But philosophy failed to satisfy his spiritual needs, that is, the, the Greeks. So he either became a skeptic or sought, comfortable, or, or sought comfort in the mystery religions, religions of the Roman Empire. At the time of Christ's advent, philosophy had declined from the peak reached by Plato to a system of selfish, individualistic thought, such as Stoicism or Epicureanism. This bankruptcy of philosophy in the time of the coming of Christ dispose men's minds toward a more spiritual approach to life. Christianity alone was capable of filling the vacuum in the spiritual life of the day. Another way in which the Greek philosophers served Christianity was to call attention of the Greeks of their day to a, re a, readily, uh, to a reality that transcended the temporal and the relative world in which they lived. Both Socrates and Plato in the 5th century before Christ, remember when Isaiah was around, guess who else was around? Socrates and Plato. See, we normally don't put all of that together. Both Socrates and Plato in the 5th fifth, fifth century before Christ 
taught that this present temporal world of the senses is but a shadow of the real world in which the highest ideas are the intellectual abstractions of as the good, the beautiful, and the true. They insisted that reality was not temporal and material, but spiritual and eternal. Their search for truth never led them to a personal God, but it demonstrated the best that man can do in seeking God through the intellect. Christianity provided to such people as accepted uh, Socrates' and Plato's philosophy, the historical revelation of the good, the beautiful, and the true. The good, the beautiful, and the true in the person of the God-man, Christ. In other words, the, the Greek philosophers were looking for the, the beautiful, the good, and the true. Christ said, I am the truth. Christ was, is the good. Christ is the beautiful Son of God. Greek literature and history also convinced the reader that the Greeks were concerned about questions of right and wrong and man's eternal future. However, the Greeks never saw sin as more than a mechanical and contractual matter. It was never a personal matter that affronted God and injured other others. At the time when Christ came, men realized there's never before the insufficiency of human reason and polytheism. Christianity provided this personal relationship and found that Greek culture, because of its own inadequacy, had created many hungry hearts. And beloved, Look at society today. What do we see? Many hungry hearts. They don't know what they're seeking. What they're seeking is in themselves. And they can't find it. We need to be there with the gospel, if at all possible, whenever we can. Religious contributions. There's the Roman religion, the Greek religion, and the Jewish religion. Under the Roman religion, Roman conquest led to a loss of belief by many peoples in their gods because the gods had not been able to keep them from defeat by the Romans. Such people were left with a spiritual vacuum that could not be filled satisfactorily by the religion of the day. Then, too, the substitutes of Rome uh, had to offer for the lost religions could do no more than make the people realize their need for a more spiritual religion. These substitute religions and their bloody sacrifices emphasized a Savior God. They found that these bloody sacrifices could do nothing for them and that through the work of the Holy Spirit they found the reality of the true blood sacrifice in Christ Jesus. 
for the Greeks in Greek religion. The advent of materialistic Greek philosophy in the 6th century before Christ destroyed the faith of the Greek people in the old polytheistic worship. The people then turned to philosophy, but it too soon lost its vigor. Both the Greeks and the Romans' system of philosophy and religion thus made a negative contribution to the coming of Christianity by destroying the old polytheistic religion and by showing the inability of human reason to reach God. People haven't come that far yet in our age. They still think their human reason can reach God, but they're going to find out that it doesn't. It doesn't satisfy. <coughs> and the mystery religions to which many turned accustomed the people to think in terms of sin and redemption. Thus, when Christianity appeared, people within the Roman Empire were more receptive to a religion that provided a spiritual approach to life. Then with the Jewish religion, the Jewish people, in contrast to the Greeks, did not seek to discover God by processes of human reason. They assumed his existence and granted to him read readily the worship that they felt was his due. They were influenced toward the course by the fact that God sought them and revealed himself to them in history by his appearances to Abraham and other great leaders of the race. Jerusalem became the symbol of a positive religious preparation for the coming of Christianity. Salvation was to be indeed of the Jews, as Christ told the woman at the well in John 4.22. Judaism provided the heredity of Christianity and for a time gave the infant religion shelter. One, Judaism existed in striking contrast to the generality of pagan religions by an em emphasis upon a sound spiritual monotheism. Never again after the return of the Babylonian captivity did the Jews lapse into idolatry. The gods of the pagans were merely idols which the Jewish prophets condemned in no uncertain terms. This lofty monotheism was spread by numerous synagogues scattered throughout the Mediterranean during the three centuries preceding the coming of Christ. Mediterranean area. Two, the Jews offered to the world the hope of a coming Messiah who would bring righteousness to this earth. This messianic hope was in sharp contrast to the nationalistic aspiration of Horace depicted in the poem in which he described the Roman ruler who was to come, the son to be born to Augustus. The hope of a, of a Messiah had been popularized in the Roman world by its steady proclamation by the Jews. 
Three, in the moral part of the Jewish law, Judaism also offered the world purest ethnic, uh, ethical system in justice. The purest, excuse me, Judaism also offered to the world the purest ethical system in existence. The high standard of the Ten Commandments was in sharp contrast with the prevailing ethical system of the days. And still more corrupt practice of those moral systems by those who professed them. To the Jews, sin was not the external, mechanical, contractual failure, the Greeks and Romans, but it was a violation of the known will of God, a violation which expressed itself in an impure heart and then in overt external acts of sin. This moral and spiritual approach of the Old Testament made for a doctrine of sin and redemption that re really met the problem of sin. Salvation came of God and was not to be found in rationalistic systems of ethics or subjective mystery religions. For the Jewish people still further prepared the way for the coming of the Christianity by providing an infant church with a sacred book, the Old Testament. Even a casual study of the New Testament will reveal Christ and the apostles' deep indebtedness to the Old Testament and their reverence for it as the Word of God to man. Many Gentiles read it and became familiar with the tenets of the Jewish faith. The books of the Old Testament and the books of the New Testament given under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit were to be the living literature of the people of God. The Jews also provided an institution that many Christians forget was most useful in the rise and development of Christianity. This institution was the Jewish synagogue. Born of necessity during the enforced absence of the Jews from the temple of Jerusalem during the Babylonian captivity, the synagogue became an integral part of Jewish life. Through it, Jews and also many Gentiles were made familiar with a higher approach to life. It, also, it was also the place in which Paul first went to preach in all the cities he reached in the course of his uh, missionary journeys. It became the preaching house of early Christianity. Judaism was indeed the pedagogus to lead men to Christ. At no other time in the world's history before the coming of Christ was such a large religion under one law and government. The Mediterranean world also had one culture centering in Rome. One common tongue made it possible to give the gospel to the most of the people of the empire in a tongue common to them and to the preacher. Palestine, the birthplace of the new religion, had a strategic location in the world. Paul was right in emphasizing the that the Christianity was not something done in a corner, Acts 26, 26, because Palestine was an important crossroads linking the continents of Asia and Africa with Europe by land route. If you'll notice, Europe 
in Africa and Asia, all they went had to go through Jerusalem. Had to go through Israel. Many of the most important battles of ancient history fought for the possession of this strategic area. Negatively, through the contributions of the Greek and Roman world and positively through Judaism, the world was prepared to the fullness of time. When God sent forth His Son to bring redemption to a war-torn, sin-weary humanity, it is significant that of all the religions practiced in the Roman Empire at the time of Christ's birth, only Judaism and Christianity have been successful in surviving the changing course of human history. Now, I hope I didn't weary you too much. I hope it kind of set the stage to show that God was in control in bringing all of those things together. And our same God is still in control today. We don't know what He's doing. We can look back on our lives individually sometime and see when we went through certain trials and afflictions, now I know why, why God brought me. Why He brought me that way. Many of them we still don't know and may never know. But occasionally we do. And just as we've been studying about from the time of Solomon all the way down to the time of Christ, God was intervening with all these nations fighting in wars and rumors of wars, pagan religions and had their different influences, languages had their different influences, politics and governments and so on. Our same God is still ruling today. We may not know what's going on. We don't know when the Lord is return, going to return. But He's still the same God today. As we sing often, and we'll probably sing when we get through, He's just the same today. He's just the same today. And when the fullness of times come again, the Lord will return. He will return. He's not coming back until the last elect has been brought to grace. Just think about how many of your kinfolks and friends that from all appearance they do not know the Lord. If He comes back today, they'll be in a perishing condition. As long as there's life, there's hope. As long as government and world is in existence, there's hope we can still pray. Beloved, we serve an all-powerful, gracious, and loving God. And we have, we have answers for people today that are seeking. The sad part about it too often when we come across individuals, they're not seeking. They think they've got everything under their own powers. 
But when God brings one along, may God give us wisdom and understanding to let them know of the true God and true Savior and that there's none other name under heaven given whereby we must be saved. And let them know that it is essential that they believe in Christ, not in any other gods of the world, not in any other philosophy, not in any other religions, not, in, not even in themselves, but in the only God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, we'll take up more of that uh, this afternoon. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I realize and know that the material that I have covered today could be merely dry words. But I pray that you would put life into those words, into the heart and the souls of all who hear, particularly with those who love thee. We can look back in history and see how that you were there, how that you intervened, and even with Caesar was going to make an enrollment, a taxation, and had a great desire to do it, but he was put off for 27 years. He thought he was frustrated. No doubt he might have been frustrated and thought things were going against him. Well, they may have been going against him, but not against you. It wasn't time yet. Was a time for it had to be a time for Joseph to be born, Mary to be born, Christ to be born at the appointed hour, the accomplished time, and even in our own lives, our God. Paul said, "When it pleased you to separate him from his mother's womb, to call him by your grace." So likewise, it pleased you to separate us from our mother's womb and at the appointed time to bring us unto you. Yes, our God, we're not here by accident. We're here by your divine purpose. May we bow to you and serve you accordingly. Forgive us our sins as we trust in Christ Jesus and His righteousness. And it is in His name we pray. Amen.